And welcome to the 124th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that wouldn't trade with the technologically handicapped. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face to Face Games. FaceToFaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the US and Canada. Check out Face to Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, James. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Hello, hello on this rainy summer afternoon. I know. All I wanted to do today was do something on my car, and then it clear Monday through Friday, rain Saturday, Sunday, now clear Monday through Friday after. It's very rude. <laughs> Unfortunate. Um, okay, so our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What is on the agenda today, my friend? This week, a show in four parts. Segment one is our top mover. We'll look at the cards that have seen the largest price increase over the last week. Segment two, our cards to watch. We'll talk about cards James and I think may rise in price. Segment three, our metagame week in review. We're going to talk a little bit about the MTGO PTQ from a couple days ago. And finally, for our segment four, our topic of the week, uh, we got a couple items on the uh, docket here. The Magic 2019 spoilers are uh, not quite finished, I think, right? There's a little bit left there, but close to being done. Um, the uh, Japanese Grand Prix trading policy, which is curious, uh, and uh, the... Recent SCOTUS ruling regarding taxation and internet sales. Um, oh, yes. Good point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's jump in here at the top. Segment one or top movers. First card of the week, Treetop Village from Urza's Legacy. Foils 20 to 40. Uh, Treetop Village, of course, is a longtime modern staple. Urza's Legacy is old as hell and very few copies available. Um so not surprising to see this move. I don't know how many copies. Uh, if you had asked me how much an Urza's Legacy Foil Treetop Village was, I don't think I would have said $20. I probably would have said something closer to 40 Yeah, it's a little surprising, actually, that a foil that old has taken this long to pop, but it's largely a result of the fact that it's been reprinted several times. It's had a couple of promos, but all of the relevant uh, foil, desirable foils are on the move at this point because it hasn't been reprinted in quite some time. That is, yeah, that's true. I suppose we have seen it uh, several times now. Uh, after that is Ristic Study from Prophecy. Uh, the foils from Prophecy specifically are moving from 30-something to, this is a 70, which is conceivable. Um, Ristic Study is one of the most played blue cards in the format, actually. It's, uh, did you pay one for that? Did you pay one for that? Did you pay one for that? Well, now you're paying $70 for that. Um, I don't know. They really think this is a $70 card. Uh, but I mean, maybe it sticks there. I mean, it's old. It just seems like people who want copies will just settle with something else. Cause I think the CMA ones are like 10 bucks. I'm actually surprised this isn't higher to be honest that this has almost no foil printings. One that's 15 years old and the other one that is, uh, not well regarded. Um, but the card is one of the most powerful blue cards in the format and blue is one of the most powerful colors in the format. Um, 
I think you're going to get this again, um, probably in a commander deck in the fall or something. It's probably not going to be foil the next time. And that means these foils have room to run. So you think it should be more than 70? Given how powerful the card is in the format, it's like one of the best card draw engines if you're playing blue. Um, and how few times, exactly one 15 years ago, uh, this thing has been printed in foil. If it was a rare, I think it would already be 150 to $200. As opposed to the an uncommon. Right. Um, I mean, it, effectively, it's a mythic if you compare print runs from that era to print runs today. Um, and and look at the attrition factor and how many of these copies have are no longer in near mint status. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I can't imagine myself ever paying for something like that for this card, but I suppose that that's not entirely unreasonable. Um, well, I mean, pe- people are paying 130 plus for foil Najilas, and that's brand new. Yeah, that's ridiculous, too. Uh, yeah, I, gu- I, I guess it could be could be $100. I mean, the thing here is that it, this is the kind of card that's it's not on the reserve list. And if it doesn't show up in a fall product, if it shows up in a Battle Bond type summer product or an ancillary set in the, in the spring or something, then the foils are under severe pressure. Yeah, I mean, part of it's also been around for so long. Like, if it was going to be more, it feels like it would have gotten there by now, maybe. But then again, I suppose you could look at about $70 point. Well, that's what we could have said about most of the reserve list, yeah. right? Yeah, because I mean, it's not like its popularity is new. No, I, I I think it's probably that a little bit that the commander arsenal copies, like you said, are relatively plentiful, um, but they can dry up too. There aren't that many of those around. True, true. Um, I actually got one of these as a throw in that I valued at $40 on the floor at GP Vegas as part of a five or $600 deal. And felt pretty good about it. So if this price sticks, that'll be excellent. That would make that trade even better. <laughs> I mean, there's only there's one copy left on TCG Player of the originals, and if you're looking at the Commander's Arsenal copies, there's exactly eight copies left, and the ramp is pretty steep between thirty five and fifty. So I have a feeling this sticks. Yeah, I mean, the more we talk about it, the more I realize it probably is. It's just sometimes the stuff catches me by surprise, but yeah, that likely is the correct price. Could, or should I say it could be right. even higher. Mm-hmm. All right, so moving right along, we've got Selhana Ledgewalker at a guild pack. Those foils going from $10 to $20. It's 100% gain on the back of Popper Stompy action. Popper uh, was a popular format at GP Vegas. I suspect that at large tournaments, it will continue to be um, plenty of reason for Magic players to be interested in a budget option, especially in a format that by all reports is relatively fun to play. Um, so I think we will continue to see uh, pockets of popper cards pop here and there. <laughs> sounded fun. Uh, after that is Wall of Glare from Urza's Death and Destiny. Foils from a dollar and change up towards four. Uh, that's based entirely on Arcade Sabbath, who uh, is the new Doran. He's a, uh, a Bant Doran now, um, but it's still the deal damage based on toughness. Um, just, Wall of Glare is not reserve list, and it's just a common. It's two mana 05. This creatures can block. It can block any number of creatures. Seems real sketchy, but sure, why not, I guess? <laughs> well, in that deck, it's a 2255 that can block infinite creatures. So that's not a bad deal at all. I mean, <laughs> but it, it kind of <laughs> is. Like, there's you only get so many slots 
in those types of decks. And like, this just doesn't feel like it does enough for you. If that makes sense. Well, I mean, I, I, against the decks that make lots of tokens, right? Like things like Najila that are trying to come over with infinite everything's um, being able to block a whole bunch of stuff that, as long as it doesn't have trample, is pretty good. Yeah, but you only the, get it, you only get it once, though. Uh, assuming you're not you're not recur- you don't have recursion in your deck, um, we should probably call out the details of Arcades the Strategist because this is not the, the the last card on this list this week. Um, this is a 3-5 legendary creature, Elder Dragon, with flying and vigilance. Whenever a creature with Defender enters the battlefield under your control, you draw a card. And of course, all old walls have been uh, mostly eroded to be uh, creatures with Defender. Each creature you control with Defender assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. So basically, walls that have high toughness and it's irrelevant what their power is, um, are going to be useful, especially if they do other things when they come in, and they all turn into Wall of Blossoms. So Wall of Blossoms draws two cards and is a 4-4 four, for four. four. That's, a, <laughs> that's, a decent, that's a decent card. Yeah, I mean, anything um, with your commander out is going to be sick. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And, and Jim Casale's point earlier on Twitter this week was that this is one of those decks where if you can't figure, build it so that your, your commander or the um overlapping effects are in play then your deck basically does nothing you're just playing a bunch of walls but there are ways i mean there is another card to provide some uh degree of overlap um or redundancy in the form of assault formation right which essentially does the same thing um and and then you can play a bunch of enchantment search cards like uh enlightened tutor to go get that so that b- between Arcadis only costing four and, you know, a bunch of five or six cards that can tutor up relevant things, you might be able to be, you know, relatively consistent. The other thing is I would argue that people underestimate the willingness of this community to build suboptimal decks. I mean, there's the whole 75 principle. And when I was at Vegas playing people randomly with my commander deck, I played against combo decks that could kill me on turn three all the way through to, a guy challenging me to go toe-to-toe with Atraxa and him playing, you know, building his entire deck around Grasp of Fate <laughs> and and me just being like, what? <laughs> what? What are you doing? No, no, sorry, not Grasp of Fate. Whatever the one is that, that moves counters from one creature to another. It's like an instant for one blue slash black. I think it's from... Uh, oh, that would have uh, been like Shadow Moor or Eventide. Fate, fate Transfer? Fate transfer one and yep, move all counters from target creature onto another target creature. Yeah. So so he gets absolutely wrecked by my like fairly top end attracts a planeswalkers build. He's dead by like turn six, and I haven't like all I'm doing is curving out. And then he goes on to explain to me that his whole deck is built around fate transfer. <laughs> okay. So if people are willing to do that, they are more than willing to build suboptimal wall-based decks just because they're fun. I mean, group hug decks exist as a concept in this format, something that you would never see in competitive. Yeah, people will definitely build this deck because it's cool when it works and they like the idea of it working and you get to do kind of nifty stuff when it works. Uh, And then when you don't have one of your two cards out, you know, arcades or assault formation, it's going to do absolutely nothing. But you can build it redundant enough that you don't worry about it. Uh, I, I, you know, these are the type of decks that I feel like don't tend to have a lot of stain power and don't tend to enforce long-term card prices because you put it together, you play it once or twice, and then you're like, 
this is cool when it works, but it's pretty boring when it's not like it's just not fun. So you kind of shelve it and you don't keep up with it. This is in contrast to something like Brayer or Traxa where they just do lots of the decks are already doing lots of stuff. And then when you resolve the commander, it's just even better. Um, so, you know, that's something you can keep coming back to. So I wouldn't, you know, I would basically I would sell all of these types of cards if you have them, because uh, it's not going to be a consistent source of demand. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is to me. I mean, I, I read Nagila in a similar fashion, but I could be wrong about that. Um, other people seem to feel differently. Uh, Cryptolith right uh, out of Shadows over Innistrad. The foils going from eight dollars to eighteen. This is a strong EDH card that turns everything into a Birds of Paradise on your side. Um, I think we called this way back when, um, so I'm not surprised to see this pop off about a year after rotation. Uh, we also have Valakut the Molten P- Pinnacle out of Zendikar. Uh, non-foils going from nine to almost 20. This is on probably on the back of scape shift uh, getting cheaper after a reprint in battle bond. Uh, and uh, wait, no M19 announcement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Scape shift. Scape is M19. In M19. Right. So scape shift is a forthcoming reprint, um, which makes people chase after Valakut because might let them get in on that. Disappointing. The reason crypto life right is bolded is because I just brought it up again. Like I put that as a pick of the week in Watchtower, like okay. a week ago. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're gonna, we're blaming you then. Yes. Yeah. 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 But in my, my defense, defense, in my defense, I didn't. I don't think Nigella was maybe Nigella. No, I mean, I think Nigella was spoiled when I did it. Yeah. Okay. So, so what was the logic in the article? Uh, I actually didn't even think of Nigella when I was writing about it. It was just a really good card in EDH sees a ton of play uh, and a ton of decks find it useful. So Najila, like making it very good use of it is just an added bonus. Okay. Yeah, I can buy into all that. I mean, again, (laughs) open-ended utility cards tend to, uh, that are reasonably priced tend to find a pretty solid long-term home in EDH. Yeah. Um, Okay. Did you, you said you talked about Valakut. Did you mention Crush? I don't remember. Okay. Nope, that's your next one. Uh, yeah, so the next one is Crash Liberated Surprise from the Vault Legends. Uh, the promo copies, now, well, not promo, sort of promo from the Vault. Um, foils five and change to 13. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I know you didn't put anything down here either. I So I, you're probably unclear as well. I mean, supply is going to be on the lower side from the Vault Legends was quite a while ago now. Um, I don't remember what year that was. There's basically no supply left. Uh, oh, uh, well, he's a warrior, I guess. So you could put him into Najila, but like, he doesn't really do anything else in that deck other than be a warrior. Maybe that's good enough for people to care. What What's his uh, activated ability? Uh, it's whenever a creature and a, whenever any other creature dies, put that many one one counters on him, where uh, that's the equal to the creature's power. So if you're if any three three dies, you put three one one counters on crush, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, seems like a solid role player in the deck. I'm I'm and I'm sure what happened here is people went looking for low supply foils for Najila and and jumped in. I mean, put at least partial blame on Medina. He hasn't shut up about Najila related cards. Uh, for a couple of weeks now, which leads me to believe he's got quite a few in the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a good... So it's Crush is absolutely a good card, and I'm not saying he's not. Uh, I'm just not sure why now, but I would, again, suppose that's Najila. 
Um, after that is Edric, Spymaster Trust, Foils from Conspiracy 6 up to 15. Um, I actually, oh, thank you for reminding me that I actually did talk about this card two weeks ago. I put this as a buy from 5 to 15 and yep, the same 6 to 15. So bingo. <laughs> Archfiend of Despair from Battle Bond. Foils going from $20 to $50. Uh, <laughs> that was a. Printed as a rare, right? Uh, Archfiend of Despair. No, this was the mythic one, I think. If it's the one I'm thinking of. Mm-mm, I don't think so. Hold on, now I have to go look. Uh, no, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a single printing new card. It's the six and two opponents can't gain life at the beginning of each end step. Each opponent loses life equal to the life that that player lost this turn. Um, I don't even think that card is that great in the format. Um, probably low level utility, but... People are targeting um, rares and mythics from Battle Bond uh, foils um, early. Well, <laughs> uh, I picked up two of these at like 21, 22, because I noticed the supply was virtually non-existent. And I didn't write about it either. So the fact that this jumped up means other people had the same thought. Opponents not being able to gain life is a pretty big game in EDH. Like there is so much incidental life gain. You generally don't really think too much about it, but if your deck kind of like wants to do something with that and you put like Archfiend into Despair or your opponent puts Archfiend into play, like that's really obnoxious, especially when you get all sorts of triggers based on life gain. So it's not even just about the life in general, but it blocks out like, for instance, like a Johnny's Pride Mate and things of that nature. Sure. Um, yeah, and it, it probably squarely slots into Kalia, although that deck has many Yeah, options. and to keep in mind, this is also essentially a Furnace of Wrath or something similar to that. It doubles the amount of life your opponents lost each turn, but not you. It's not all players. So I, I, I I think I remember glazing over the first time I saw it. And then I looked at it again when I was browsing stuff and I was like, oh, this is actually really good. And I bought it because I want to put it in my Rakdos deck, but he's pretty cool. All right. I can buy all that. Uh, And more to the point, it's a, what looks like, I mean, Battle Bond's hype has shifted to M19 so quickly that, I find it hard to believe that any LGSs are still running Battle Bond events um, outside of the very largest facilities with the most dedicated limited crews, um, which is kind of unfortunate because Cliff and I played Battle Bond <coughs> at GB Vegas and it was excellent. Um, and I would be willing to do it again and again. Um, so the two-headed drafting is awesome if you're with somebody that you like to draft with. Um, tough to make that work in a larger public setting on a regular basis. Um, at say LGS level but more to the point they're just moving right along to the next product and then after that other stuff and then the fall set and we're all about Ravnica for a few months so and Battle Bond boxes are not super plentiful um, there's another wave of supply coming but for instance Japanese Battle Bond is almost impossible to find online there's like maybe one vendor on eBay that has them at 125 mm. yeah that's uh, that's a curious, curious batch of product to be holding on to um i know I, I picked up a couple japanese foil battle bond cards i uh i think there's probably some legs on that stuff oh <laughs> definitely especially this stuff i mean if archfiend of despair is a card um any of the ones that have only ever been printed in battle bond single edition foils in a relatively low supply some total i mean those cards have real room to run for sure yeah I and mean, part of this is i guess the, just... the japanese vendors aren't allowed to sell boxes overseas otherwise there'd be more supply in the market so, mm-hmm. and and it's also not the kind of product that's getting handed out to judges true true yeah the ja- the japanese stuff in particular seems like it'll be real low print run 
Um, after that is Wall of Light from Legends. Uh, Wall of Light from Legends. This is just both on the reserve list and popular in the new the Arcade Sabbath uh, uh, Doran deck. It's three mana, one five. Oh, it's not the reserve list. It just is old and from Legends. But it's a three mana, one five pro black. It's terrible. The art's funky. Stay away. <laughs> Sell it if you've got it. It's not even reserve list. Reserve list adjacent, so. Sky, Sky Shroud Ranger 10th edition foils from $5 to 12 This is Amulet Titan. Um, they started using this when other cards they needed got banned. I think it was, was it Explorer that got banned or? Uh, no. No. Summer Bloom. Summer Bloom. There you go. Uh, Champion of Lambholt from Avacyn Restored moving from $4 to $12. Uh, it's a warrior, so it's a Najila spec. That was another good one. I wrote about that like a week or two ago and didn't think about the fact that uh, Najila cared and it just got, it was already well positioned and Najila just sort of like put it on turbo mode. I think it's fair to say we have a Najila blind spot at this point. (laughs) Well, we certainly did. (laughs) I'm coming around. Yeah. (laughs) Not to the point where I'm going to start grabbing Najila cards, mind you, because I've got other priorities, but, but I understand what's going on. Yep. And that one that I, I pretty sure because I had only ever thought about her in terms of like warrior card. And then Medina was like, no, it's a combo card. And I stopped and looked at it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess it kind of is, isn't it? Uh, that does work. So like, well, I guess you get a five color combo deck that lets, that just wants you to attack a lot and can occasionally set up infinite combos. I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like you don't even have to care about the warrior subtheme at all. Um, so I think it's better than certainly it, it obviously is more interesting to people than you and I realized. Yeah, I think the key point is that you don't think about Najila as the as a tribal deck so much as a combo deck that happens to be be encouraged to use members of a certain tribe. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So crenellated wall from Arcadian Masks foils from three fifty to eleven or twelve. Again, Arcadus the strategist is driving all of these wall buyouts. Um, uh, paradoxical outcome from Kaladesh. Uh, this one is not. Uh, EDH thing. This is more of a modern or vintage card. Foils moving from $3 to $10. Um, LSV had a video article on YouTube this week uh, with Paradoxical Outcome, so that may have played a role. Oh, yeah. Possibly. Reminded people it was out there, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, Animate Dead from Eternal Masters. Foils, 5 and change, up towards 20 uh, another one, I guess, that I talked about in episode 121, um, I said 5 to 12, and it is now at uh, 18. So 50% past where I thought it would be. But yeah, it's like the only foil other than the uh, Graveborn. Graveborn. Yeah, the, what are the, the premium deck series, that's what they were called. Um, and it's, you know, very extremely popular in EDH, shows up in all the cubes, blah, blah, blah. So uh, foils will come of this again. So I would definitely sell them now if you've got them. Flooded Shoreline from Visions from a dollar to four fifty. That's a bottom of the barrel reserve list card. Moving right along, Wall of Reverence hmm. uh, from Conflux. Yet another Arcadis Sabbath. Is this the one where you gain life as a cumulative upkeep or something? The Wall yeah. of Reverence was the uh, at the beginning of your end step. You gain life equal to the power of target creature you control. <laughs> wait, this wait. has always been pretty popular. Wait, don't you mm-hmm. have to have a wall with high power then? 
You have to have a creature with with decent power. That doesn't seem. I, I mean, why is this on this list instead of Wall of Denial foils? That thing is an eight eight shroud Wall of Blossoms in this deck for three. Uh, I would guess that it's because it's unlike it's likely you will have at least one creature with decent power. <laughs> I don't know which one it's going to be. I mean, our, our, well, if you arcades is like a six six, isn't no, it? It's a three five. Oh, he's a three five. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's possible that you will end up with no creatures with any power, but in general, like there are other creatures you need that are have power that are still useful. I suppose. I, I, I feel like people are kind of taking stabs in the dark on this card. I'm not sure people have really figured out the list yet. Um, the next one makes sense though. Shield Sphere from Alliances hasn't been reprinted since Alliances, um, to my knowledge, and went from two dollars to ten dollars on the back of being a zero six wall, well a six six wall of blossoms in this deck for zero, which seems fine. Uh, yeah, that card is real cool. Um, I remember trying to play with this. Oh God, so long ago, and I, you know, I don't remember what 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 deck it was, but I remember, I do remember building with it. You can probably do some fun things with like equilibrium type effects in this deck if you're going to have a lot of comes into play abilities on the walls, um, where you just keep picking this back up and putting it back down and drawing cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you have a way to bounce it, yeah. Um. After that is Slagstorm, Foils from Mirrodin Besieged, Dollar and Change up towards 10. Uh, you got Hollow One Sideboard card here, which sounds like it's probably accurate. I know Anger of the Gods mm-hmm. tends to be more popular in Modern because the Exile Clause is so relevant. But if you're playing the Hollow One deck, you don't really want to exile your own stuff. Uh, so I suppose that's not unreasonable. I, I was When I was looking at this, I was wondering whether the Grixis Death Shadow builds ever ran this instead of Anger. It seems inter- like, don't you want... Because one of the modes here is to do three damage to each player, which could, in theory, hit your opponent for three, then make your Death Shadow three bigger. Yeah, I mean... Because it hits you. Yeah, that is very possible. Like, kind of like a dual purpose. Like, sometimes you're sweeping tokens, sometimes you're essentially doing six damage with it because they take three and your yeah. guy hits for three more. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So... Next on the list, Wall of Kelp from Homelands. Yet another Arcadis the Strategist card from $2 to 9 or so for about 450% gain, if you believe that. Um, the number of Homelands cards making money this year <laughs> is 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 the the best argument for there being a bubble that I've ever seen, um, despite there not being say, a bubble. Wouldn't you just say there was no bubble? Didn't you tell them the last two yeah. casts saying there's no bubble? <laughs> I, I just think that it, it stretches in, like credulity. credulity um, to see cards from Homeland like this that languished for 20 years um, find reasons to pop off. Uh, yeah, like people are certainly more willing to buy garbage from garbage sets because the rest of the reserve list has given them confidence. Yep. And I mean, is this even good in that deck? Like it's a it's a zero three for two that taps to make one ones. So it's a three three for two that taps to make one ones for two. I mean, seems fine. Uh, not not fantastic. No, that's not good. No, <laughs> you I, well, I mean, you get to pay two tap, put a wall in the play. So if you have yeah. arcades and play its draw card, true. Even still, uh, is it is it ca- is it cast or play comes uh, into play? I, I actually don't know. 
Uh, let me just check. It is find it first. Enters the battlefield. Okay, so yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> it's excellent actually. It's making one ones that draw cards. Yeah, I mean that's still not phenomenal. Like you get to do it once a turn, right? It's not like you can just keep paying two to do it. So you can't just like drop eight mod and draw four cards type of thing. Um, Somebody's gonna have a cool build of this that does something with all those cards in hand. Because this this deck draws a lot of cards. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I, I don't know. I, I don't see myself putting this into that deck, but like, sure, whatever. Maybe people think it's good enough. It's still not a $10 card. And so, Rift Sweeper from Modern Masters, moving from $1.50 to $12. Uh, why is this a Arcadius card? Uh, oh, that was mispasted. Okay, so it is not a arcade card. Rift Sweeper. I'm not sure what would have triggered Rift Sweeper because this is the one that drags cards. So it's a foils from a dollar and change up to twelve, so a huge jump. But Rift Sweeper is one that pulls cards from exile and shuffles them back in the or puts people back in people's graveyard. Like what what got printed that this care, cares about? Was there a new card in M19 that did something about putting cards face up into play? Uh not that I remember. I have a vague memory. Uh it didn't seem important at the time. <laughs> Moving right along. Contract from below from revised edition, a uh, dollar to ten dollars. It's a reserve list anti card. Um, you know, reserve reserve list and reserve list adjacent. Um, anti cards. I mean, I like them. I, I wish Magic still had anti. I wish every Magic game I played involved anti. Really? But, yeah. Oh yeah. I I miss anti hardcore. I I. My, it was my favorite part of the game. Really? I, I love the idea. I'm a gambler by heart. <laughs> and I love the idea that it that here's the thing. This was one of the balancing factors in the pay to win scenario. If you have a thousand dollar deck and I have a hundred dollar deck, then the card you flip off the top of the start of the game is going to be 10 times on average ten, worth 10 times what mine is. And so you have you're going to win ten, nine times out of 10, but I'm going to get a. a excellent card the other time and that seems fine i mean putting uh, putting putting children and gambling laws aside i would be all for anti i mean i think it's a i remember this discussion uh with jesse when we had him on because he referenced that as well it's i i don't know it's odd to me uh that you would like it that anyone would like it, I guess. Like I get where it comes from. The problem is the price disparity is so dramatic, but at least today between the cards that it's not like I'm losing my $6 card and you're only putting up your 75 cent card or dollar card. It's like, you know, I could flip a $500 soul ring and you could flip a basic land type of crap. Yeah. But uh, think, 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 think about how much more exciting, like old school, and vintage magic cats in this scenario you can televise it on the basis of what's being flipped off the top alone yeah i guess i i being much less of a gambler would never play magic again which is probably <laughs> why they got rid of anti well yeah and I, I, and get, don't get me wrong i don't think anti should be enforced as part of the normal rule set for all formats i just think that a format that embraces anti definitely has a home like there's there's no doubt in my mind that like, there's already under there there was a rumor at vegas that i never bothered to substantiate that there was an underground old school tournament that was using anti that weekend <laughs> i think it was driven by some of the Euro european players or something um 
that they were that they ran at one of the hotels off offsite. Um, That's kind of funny. And and if I had a deck with me, I would have like absolutely got in on that if I was invited. What's interesting is that changes the dynamic of deck building so so much because you're like, yeah. oh, I don't want to build the best deck possible. I want to build the best deck full of crap cards. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, I think that's an interesting dynamic to have in at least one of our formats. Um, and I, I just think that there's so many, there's so many cool like, like bad beats and like triumphant stories that come out of that that become memes and like social media opportunities that advance the brand. You have the complicating factor of gambling not being able to associate gambling with a brand that potentially is an onboard onboarding ramp for children, <laughs> which, which you're never going to get over. Like that hurdle's tough. Yeah. We, we, um, so we say never, we're gambling for online for children, not in paper. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> we're barely hiding it in things like in, in the games that use loot crate systems, but that notwithstanding, um, I, I get why it's not mainstream. I just miss it. I, I, I would voluntarily anti once per week. If I could. <laughs> Now I can see it in uh, Popper, right? Like where your your cards aren't maxing out as as high. Well, the thing is that it's you have even chances, so you know it's gonna it's gonna even out over time. Sure, because people aren't people, people. The whole format's not gonna go like cheap, and if it does, then again your chances become even because you'll do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, if, if if you're playing in a if you're playing a deck full of like masterpieces or something, and everyone else is playing a five dollar deck, then you'll just switch to a five dollar deck and away you go. Yeah, I mean it's gambling, right? So like over time, it will even out, but you know those swings are going to be dramatic and intense. Uh, it would also <laughs> create a whole new market for played cards, that's for sure. No shit. <laughs> All right. So evil eye of Orms by Gore from Legends in theory going from a dollar fifty to seventeen reserve list. Corrosion from Visions from fifty cents to twenty dollars reserve yeah. list. That's a thirty eight hundred percent gain. Yeah, if you I buy, mean, if you buy if that, it, yeah, if which you sells it. So let's just see what the buy list on that is because it's. I'm gonna guess a dollar fifty is the current best buy. I mean, list. I don't even let's just see. Might not even be that high, right? It is fifty six yeah. cents. So from 48 to 56 cents in real terms. Every time we see one of these cards appear and it's like this huge gain and I've never heard of it uh, and it's this old, I'm like, uh, yeah, not only is that reserve list, it's also reserve list and bad. Like there are some of the cards that pop up on our list and I'm like, oh yeah, like I know this card and it's it's not great, but it's got, you know, corner cases, but something like corrosion, I'm like, I've never been heard of this. This cannot be good. Corrosion actually, I think, does have a corner case for EDH. Cumulative upkeep of one, one black red enchantment. During your upkeep, put a rust counter on each artifact target opponent controls. If the number of rust counters on an artifact equals or exceeds that artifact's casting cost, bury it. So it wipes out soul like soul rings and mana rocks within two or three turns for limited for about five minutes. That's is not it each opponent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fine. The flip side of that is it's three mana plus what? Oh, sorry, sorry. It's it's it affects each opponent when it checks but you only get to target one opponent per per mm. turn cycle yeah and this, so not a, the not thing is good. is like okay or i could just pay four mana for Shatterstorm, <laughs> right Fair. but that destroys all artifacts yeah including or bandle blast for five uh so it, it, you know it's it's not that it doesn't do something it's just there's so many cards that do it much better yep agreed all right, so that's the end of our uh, top movers list for this week. Let's jump into our cards to watch segment two. 
um, I'll kick us off. Uh, my first pick this week is a card I was looking at as I started to mull whether I wanted to build Joda, and I had bought a couple of German foil copies in Europe um, that finally showed up this week, um, which circled me back around to this. Fist of the Sun's foils, confidence level, say, of 8, short to midterm on the back of Joda hype, um, buy price of somewhere around $18 you can still get them for, and I suspect that before this ever sees a reprint, it's going to be... Um, 35 or 40 the thing is that we just got it last fall um and it was printed in the commander decks i believe um as a non-foil so even though it's only in 1700 edh decks if you see that pump to say 3000 or something as people start building out their jodas this year um i think you're pretty safe on this one for at least two or three Hmm. years uh i mean for those foils, yeah, definitely. 18 is pretty cheap, too. I thought they were more than that. Um, you know, this had some, has tried before to really move um, back with, uh, there was something that Travis Wu did that made people excited about this. I think it was that Fist of the Suns, uh, there was a there was some sort of deck that cheated Gristlebrand in the play, and I don't remember all the pieces at the moment, but it, it used that functionality. And it had spiked before. So, so a lot of the the cards, a lot of the inventory has already kind of been drained from a couple of years ago and, and made it back in the store binders and stuff. Basically, there aren't a lot of, I don't think a lot of, there aren't a lot of foil copies just languishing because that, this did have a moment in the sun a little while ago. So now what's out there is probably what's out there, um, which means the supply is more accurate, I would say, than it would be otherwise. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it was in the, Five colored dragon deck. Uh, right? It might have been, yeah, Ramos or something sense. like that. Yeah, I think I think that was the one. And so, anytime you see like a rare or mythic that hasn't been printed in a while show up in one of those fall sets, those foils are hot targets because they're <laughs> you're not going to see it again right away. It's going to take years. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think that's a good choice. Um, I'm going to follow up with that. Uh, Diabolic intent. Foils from Battle Bond, uh, confidence round, I guess eight. Do we ever pick anything other than seven or eight? This column feels it, it, it's t- it's tough to find a nine yeah. or a ten, and we shouldn't really mention anything under an eight. So average tends to be yeah, it seems, it seems, it seems less valuable than I thought it was when I put it there. Um, foil yeah. diabolic intents are around twenty bucks right now. There's a couple at that price. The original plane shift copies are in the sixties. The uh, invocation is like 45 to 50 with a lowish supply. So they just, just got reprinted battle bond foils are around 20, almost guaranteed to hit 35 to 40 bucks. Um, It's not going to happen tomorrow, uh, but the card is very popular in EDH. It's a demonic tutor that also has you sack a creature, which you could argue is actually better or you can build a case where it's better to sack the creature. Um, And Demonic Tutor is essentially like the most popular black card in that format. So Diabolic Intent is a lot of uh, room to be used. Uh, Battle Bond foils, uh, you know, are already pretty low supply. We're not seeing a ton of them on the market at the moment. Um, And, you know, no one's opening this anymore. Uh, So I think that this is is positioned pretty well to gain over the next uh, 6 to 18 months. I think all the foils of this card are probably too low. Because now that we've had an MPS and a reprint in the same year, we're not going to see this card for a while. And the the time before that was Plane Shift. So there are three foil versions total. 
next time it could show up again as a fall commander card, say three or four years from now. These foils have all got room to run. Um, I like the masterpiece version. I like this. There's this tutor doesn't get any worse over time. It just gains more and more uses. Like for instance, Maldrotha just appeared on the scene. This card is amazing in Maldrotha because I get to cast that permanent back out of my graveyard for some commons into play ability. So you play Baleful Strix, then you Diabolic Intent, then you play Baleful Strix again, value chains. Yeah, I, uh, I do agree that these are probably, um, all of the copies are probably pos- better positioned than, than not. Uh, I like the, the, that, this one the most, but, uh, even the, the plane shift one at like 60 seems kind of cheap for how popular it is and how old those foils are. And then the invocations at 40 something too, I, they're all viable pickups. Yep. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> there's, there's only seven copies in a ramp of four of 55 to 80 on the originals. Um, on the masterpiece series invocations where the black cards look best of all of them in the realm of ugly they are also on like a 45 to 80 dollar ramp these ramps are really steep um so yeah great pick thanks uh next on my list uh mana crypt uh foils from eternal masters already at 150 up from 100 when i was buying them not so long ago i think these run to 200 um and this is mostly a pick for anybody who's thinking about picking one up between we got a bunch of mana crypts in a very short period of time um, there was a judge foil. There was the masterpiece series version, which is in the like three to four hundred dollar range now. And this is the EMA foils from last year. I don't think you're going to see this card in foil again for a while, like at least two years, um, possibly two to five years. And as a result, if you're you know holding back, hoping you're going to see a reprint this year or something, I think you stop holding back and go ahead and grab one. Like if you, if you get in at one fifty, this is one of those cards that's going to slot into your EDH deck. And you're never going to have to worry about it until you hear that they announce some new vintage or eternal masters style set, at which point you may want to consider outing. Um, yeah, I agree. I, you know, I was actually thinking Monocrypt was more than 150 right now. Oh, you're lo- okay. Wait, so the, the, okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I saw this written down and I was thinking the, um, the invention, yeah, the invention is like because the invention is like three hundred dollars right now. Yeah, even the EMA foils. Yep. I mean, the non foils are one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty, which set these foils up in such a good spot at one fifty. And then th- these can easily hang out. I agree, they don't have to be as much as the invention, but they can hang out at the, um, you know, two hundred, two fifteen, two twenty, sort of the mid mid step between like any monocrypt you can play and also the most expensive one you can play. Because the one that's at 300, the invention's probably not going to stay at 300 for much longer. Anyways, um, you know, there's, like you said, there's one, two, three, four, five copies under 300 for the inventions, and then they're in the 350. So this is kind of will sit as a good midpoint. Yeah. And I mean, this art's great. Uh, the, the masterpiece art, I think, is my favorite, but this art's also good. The original art is the worst. <laughs> um, so that helps. The. Uh, you can get a $143 copy on TCG of the EMA foil, and there's a 5% kickback on that this weekend on TCG. That seems totally solid. Yeah, uh, if, if you're getting that 5% back, that is uh, pretty nice if you're in the market for that. Um, my other pick this week is Solemn Simulacrum Inventions. 
uh, currently around 80 bucks or so to pick up a solemn simulacrum invention. Solemn, I feel like I don't need to tell you what this card is or what it does. Every magic player who's ever magic is familiar with it, especially if you're an EDH player. And, uh, you know, I have sold two soul rings this week, two invention soul rings at like 400 bucks a piece in the last seven days. And I don't tell you this because I want you guys to pat me on the back. I tell you this because like people are buying them to play with them, which which is just pretty wild. Uh, so there's definitely these. It's a very real example for me of people paying the money for these cards. So now I kind of double back and I'm like, okay, these are definitely you know these types of cards are moving. Solemn is still eighty bucks. That's pretty cheap. That's that's cheap for that's. I mean, the cheapest inventions are like thirty to forty. The good ones are 200 to 400 and Solemn Simulacrum, which is like one of the most played cards in EDH is 80, which just is like, okay, why is this not $200? Uh, and I think it will be. I, I fully agree. Not, not the least reason of which it was, this was my first pick last week. Oh, was it? Oh yeah. Look at that. It was. <laughs> You're hilarious. We've so yes, I agree with <laughs> I agree with all that. The only reason I let you run through this again um, is because I had further commentary because um, I agree that the card actually has some discussion points. I sold two of these uh, while you were selling soul rings. I sold two of these for 85 uh, online and immediately thought that I made a mistake. Um, I, 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 I took the rest down. I, I don't think this card is a sell as we've now reinforced two weeks in a row. This card is a buy. Um, 61,000 EDH decks registered just on EDH.rec, which means that in the real world, there's probably more like 150 to 200,000 decks running it. The card is good in so many different builds, including in Brea, which is a top five commander. And the masterpiece um, inventory is relatively low. The ramp is steep. I think I'm out too early. I, I think I'm supposed to be holding Solemn Simulacrum, simulacrum uh, including the copy I just opened out of a Japanese Kaladesh box while I was watching the beta draft at Vegas. Um, I, I think you hold these to 150 and I don't think you're going to have to wait that long. I think if you, if you buy it in the 80 to 90 range and hold for a year, I think you get to double up. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm on that page. I agree. And I am going to be looking for these now. I think, um, see if I can, if I can snag any under 80, I will buy them. I, I, I think anything under a hundred, like I, I, I think I'm going to go pay more to reacquire them. <laughs> than I just made selling them. Let's put it that way. Mm. Okay. And, and and there's a little lesson there for everybody to try to absorb, which is that if you, ma if you make a mistake, you, you don't have to embrace cognitive dissonance and double down that, you know, pe people love to, one of the like old chestnuts in MTG finance is always leave money for the next guy or, um, your mar don't be greedy. Your margins are so big, but you still have to run with the logic. If the logic supports that the, the sale was early, then the sale was early. You know, like I, I saw Sig uh, selling a bunch of stuff on eBay this week that all of which I thought was early. Like he, there are too many people that are get panicked about missing, like missing the, the hype cycle and missing their opportunity to get out and safe back safely into cash. But in a situation, and there are, you know, stuff like Arcades, where I think that's very good advice. But when you have something like this, a widely played masterpiece that is important in EDH, 
what's the rush? Like what downward pressure is going to displace this card from one of the biggest formats in the game? As far as I can see, nothing. So that means I was wrong when I sold them and you're probably right to buy them. Yeah, I, you know, I still think the, you know, let somebody else try and make the last little percent is a good idea. It's essentially the idea of, um, you know, if a card spikes from a dollar to 40, don't, and you can get 35 for it, just take the damn 35. Like, sure. Don't fight, you know, you don't have to spill blood over the last couple percent. Um, yep. But at this, but, and I also completely agree that sometimes you'll, you'll sell a card and be like, whoops. <laughs> uh, maybe I forget, like, whether you, intentionally did it um and then decided after the fact that it was wrong or you forgot you had the card listed which i am guilty of frequently uh that doesn't yep, mean that too yeah that doesn't mean that it's not still right to go double back and, and go the direction with it um which is also by the way whenever i'm selling any cards worth over probably 30 to 40 dollars uh unless it's the type of card that people buy a place set of i generally only list one maybe two um, because I don't want to put myself in a position where I accidentally sell a bunch more than I need to. Yeah. Bra- Humble brags in your like eBay listings is not what you want to be up to. Like you see the guys that like show a picture of like 20 of a card, like deliberately take picture of all 20 of them together and then list the inventory at 20. And you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> People react to scarcity, not, not plentifulness. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Those people are dumb. And then especially annoys me when they're selling the same card I am. Yeah. Fair. So, yeah, Solemn, there's only 13 listings on TCG. The ramp currently extends from 80 to about 105. If I had a free thousand, if I get a 3,000 or 1,500 um, off some of the stuff I just got in from Europe, I could easily see flipping it into cleaning up the rest of those. Yeah. I'm going to, after we finish, I might go peek around, see what I can find. All right, so my last pick this week is Academy Rector from Urza's Destiny, I believe. Uh, yeah, is it Saga Destiny Legacy? It's one of the three. Uh, it is Destiny. All right, so Rector, uh, we just got Arena Rector and Battle Bond, which reminded people that Academy Rector exists. This is a card that allows you to go get um, very good stuff out of many an EDH deck. Um, it's on the reserve list. It's already run up to like $80, but I could easily see this getting to $120. Um, it's not easy to replace this card. It's got a unique effect. It's in like 6,000 EDH decks on EDH rec, um, all of which leads me to believe that this would be another card you'd be selling too early if you sold now. Boy, these non-foils are up to 80 These were like, I remember when these were like 15 20 bucks. Yep. They were available. Ugh. Yep. I've got a bunch of I've got a bunch of English and Japanese copies that I got in between twenty and thirty last summer. Foils are grand. <laughs> I saw I saw to be fair I saw foils on the floor at Vegas near mint condition three fifty to four hundred. Yeah, last sold is two seventy, so not have sold yeah. at a grand yet, but um, but still, yeah, there. I mean, there's copies out here at seventy five, uh, but not a deep well. I mean, it jumps up to 100 after, like, what is that, 10, 12 copies? Um, and this card's not getting any worse. And they just gave us another card uh, that's very similar in Battle Bond at Mythic, but it searches, what was it? So one searches Planeswalkers, right? Uh, yeah. And this one searches Enchantments. Yeah. The, the thing here is that, like, I think I Might Be Early is going to be a theme that many 
vendors are now considering for reserve list. We've seen a lot of reserve list prices get bumped up by like a full 50 or 100 percent on. And we're starting to see like strong movement on power nine and and um, uh, adjacent power nine adjacent cards um, all over the place on online vendors. Inventory is getting very shallow, either because they're taking it down or because it's getting bought up. Um, I saw Dan Bach of Power Nine Games, uh, who's one of the deepest holders of reserve list cards in the country, um, post on his personal Facebook earlier this week that they took down something like 300 Power Nine related listings on eBay on the basis that they were early. Yeah, I, I, it does feel like the tide is really hasn't quite moved on power yet, but it's going to. Uh, so really, like our picks are probably. <laughs> should probably be power cards but like neither of us has really done the research to figure out which ones that's supposed to be or uh i don't know how helpful it is to tell our listeners to buy i i think my main point of debate like as i've been trying to consolidate lately has been between beta duels versus uh unlimited boxes Mm -hmm. Um, and i've been leaning towards beta duels on the basis that edh players provide an additional outlet there but i i don't think that's necessarily correct i i think that it's either of those are are solid choices and they both have arguments to be made um the power nine cards are much more iconic well not much more but they they are more iconic um because they are the power nine um but they have fewer formats and uh they have less format support so you know between collectors and crypto people and and vintage and old school people you know that's the demand profile for the power nine um Beta duels is some of those people as well, plus EDH, which to me feels like a deeper well. Yeah, I think I still feel like I like Moxes more, but uh, the case can certainly be made for um, for for beta duels as well. I don't think you're not gonna it's, you're not gonna go wrong either way. It's a question of like which one will make me more money, but they're both still gonna make you money. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about how many buyers fall out of the market at each ratchet on the price curve past like a thousand dollars as a as a card goes from a thousand to fifteen to two thousand to twenty five hundred to five thousand to ten to twenty more and more a greater and greater percentage of the market falls out to the point where if you have a twenty thousand you know black lotus less than one percent of the market would even consider it and maybe one percent of that one percent will actually buy it Mm -hmm. and and so um lowest price copy that is sleeve playable becomes a much more interesting concept for those cards than it is for say a modern staple. I don't yes. want to be holding HP copies of dark confidant. I do want, I am considering buying up MP or HP copies of moxes or beta duels. Uh, sorry, moxes in particular, because a unlimited HP mox, like the, whatever the, the cheapest sleeve playable copy is, is your cheapest on on-ramp to old school magic and vintage and so forth. And as you know, because of how many people will get shook out at the high, as, as the prices ratchet up, those cards are going to sell and uh, they're going to move. So I, I almost never bring on it, get a, like take on inventory. That's not near mint, but I would certainly consider it with power nine. Yeah, I completely agree. In the same boat as I don't like to buy stuff that are SP, but if we're talking like moxes, that's where I would start to consider it. Um, none of this has anything to do with uh, Academy Rector, though. At least not directly. <laughs> well, it's it's basically talking like foils of Academy Rector. 
um, are on that same like playing field of something like you, you don't need it, you want it. And so the lowest priced playable copy is going to be the non-foil and potentially SP, MP, HP copies at some point. That's all I got for you. Yeah. <laughs> Rector still buy at 80. And I think it's going to get to 120 or 150 relatively quickly within the next 18 months. I feel very confident within the next six if possible. More confident than an eight. <laughs> probably. Yeah, I think that's a, probably a nine. Okay. But I but um, I also think I also think your solemn pick is a nine. Yeah, probably. Well, since we back to back picked it, I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh okay. Let's move on here. Segment three, our metagame week in review of the modern PTQ, PTQ, the modern MTGO PTQ, June 8th. Red wins. A red burn deck, in fact, Death Shadow. No, no, no not a oh, red the burn goblin deck. one. Oh, I'm sorry. He, they have this listed as red deck wins. Damn it. Um, that, that's why this was interesting. This is the goblin build. Burning Tree Emissaries, Fanatical Firebrands, Foundry Street Denizens, Goblin Bushwhackers, Goblin Guides, Grim Lavamancer, Legion Loyalist, and Reckless Bushwhacker. Instants and Sorceries are three Devastating Summons, three Goblin Grenade, and three Lightning Bolt. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Devastating Summons have not seen those in a while. Yeah, that's as an additional cost to cast it, sacrifice X lands, and then put two XX red elemental creature tokens onto the battlefield. <laughs> hmm. Uh, but th- this was also notable because there are two Flame of Keld in the sideboard and four Goblin Chain Whirler. Yeah. Four, oh, yeah, the four Chain Whirler, Whirler and three Damping Sphere, too. Uh, so yep. if you weren't so, sure if that was actually good enough in modern, it looks like it is. Well, and you think Dominaria helped Goblins? <laughs> yeah. Might, Seven sideboard cards? Might appear- Nine sideboard cards? Yeah. Uh, so, like, this is a little funky. We got a lot of commons in here. Firebrand, Foundry Street Denison, Bushwhacker, uh, Reckless is Reckless, Reckless Bushwhacker is an uncommon. Um, Goblin Grenade has been common before, Lightning Bolt's common. So a lot of cards that don't really have too much room to grow in, in terms of price. You know, no one's paying a lot for a Foundry Street Denison. Um, Burning Tree Emissaries are curious, but I think they've got a couple printings now. That was sitting in yeah, I, I don't love either. Like, it's pretty marginal. I, I think the key question here is, if Goblin Chain Whirler gets banned in standard, do foils become a target for modern? Uh, I'm going to go with no. Because, you're, you, you know, Goblin Chain Whirler is, what, triple red, right? So, like, how many... It's, it's only ever going to be played by one deck, essentially, in modern. Um, yeah, no, that's not really where you want to be with modern. Yeah, specs. and I mean, it could be really good in this deck, but like how often is this deck going to be that good? Yep, fair. This is a mid-size online tournament, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. The uh, The rest of this list with Red Deck Wins, Infect, Death Shadow, Dredge, Affinity, Bloomless Titan, Blue Moon, and Infect uh, is uh, a pile of decks that do not interact. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. They were saying after the... Um the uh, whatchamacallit, the no bandless modern event that it was actually more interactive than normal modern because all the cards that are banned are really interactive, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I wonder if there's value to like, okay, let's just unban everything in modern, then reban like two or three cards and start from there, kind of like refresh the whole format. I'm not saying wizards will do it or that they should do it, but it would be interesting to see how that would play out if you'd end up with a better modern. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't see a lot of financial implications here. We're in the summer doldrums and most of the competitive uh, uh, tournaments are going to be relatively mellow for the rest of the summer, not really driving major spikes unless something brand new shows up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not a... Uh, I'm I'm definitely an EDH speculator in the summer. Or- yeah. All right, so let's jump into our topics of the week. Um, I almost forgot to put the, the most important one on the list. You want to guide us through it? Yeah, I'm assuming you're referring to the taxes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I did a little bit of reading on this uh, to make sure I understood what was going on. So let me talk through this, and uh, our Canadian counter- Canadian counterpart here can inform me about U.S. tax law if he catches anything that I miss. <laughs> but the way it worked is prior to today, prior to this ruling, if you purchased goods online, the vendor was only required to obtain sales tax from you if they had a physical presence in your state. So for instance, TCG player is located in New York. So when I living in New York, buy from TCG player, they have to charge me sales tax. However, if I buy from ABU, which is listed, it's over in like Utah or something like that, I don't have to pay sales tax there. Technically, I am still legally required to pay sales taxes on those purchases. So when I buy from ABU, I'm on the hook to pay taxes for those. However, the state can't require ABU to collect them. It's on me to file those taxes uh, personally. So think about how many goods goods you have purchased online and how many times you have gone out of your way to claim to pay to volunteer the taxes for those in when you pay your taxes every year. Uh, I'm going to save you thinking about it. It's zero. You have never done it. No one has ever done it. No one on the face of the planet has ever done it. What this ruling does is allows states to require the vendors to collect sales taxes. So now, whatever state it is the ABU is in, can require them to collect their sales taxes on me. So now when I buy from ABU, ABU can charge me sales tax or may be required to charge me that sales tax. So the first level is that for consumers, you are there is now the possibility that you are going to pay sales tax on everything that you purchase online, whereas you probably weren't doing that before as long as you weren't buying from like Amazon or who, you know a humongous company. The next level up is it is an absolute nightmare for the people selling online because ABU only had to collect sales taxes from people living in, we're just going to keep saying new tax. I don't know what state they're in. They only had to collect. I think it's Idaho. Idaho. Oh, that sounds a little better. They had to keep, nobody lives in Utah. They had to collect sales taxes on Idaho today, but that was the only people. Well, now everyone could require ABU to collect sales taxes. So now ABU has to like set up the logistics to collect sales taxes for 50 different states, right? Like that's, that's a mess. Like, okay, where is my buyer located? And like, then I have to figure out what tax to charge them. So like, it depends on that type of thing. And then this gets even weirder when you're talking about TCG player who has every vendor, like you can have vendors that live in 50 different states. So you have to like, wait, where, what state is a vendor in and what state is a buyer in? And like, they have to, that, that seems like that could be a real mess. Now, the change today, like the immediate implication is pretty minimal. Because I think the only place that this is in effect, like I know Massachusetts had chosen to essentially reconsider the federal ruling and decided to basically just start doing it anyways, 
before the SCOTUS ruling came down. So they're requiring um, people who sell, I think it was over $100,000 or $500,000, something, some very high number in sales or 100 transactions or something like that in Massachusetts. So it was only affecting pretty large stores, um, which is the way we might see some states go about it. Like they're not really going to be interested in chasing down somebody who's doing, you know, small, small ball sales in their state because it's just not worth the effort, both for the company who's trying to sell the stuff and the, and the state who wants to collect 30 bucks in taxes over a year. Um, but it, it does open the door to some real messy situations and essentially adds a tremendous amount of friction to online sales that wasn't there before, or at least has a potential to add it. What do you think? Yeah, so I mean, it sucks from my perspective because one of the reasons I buy primarily on eBay instead of TCG Player is because it dodges the tax that I have to pay if I ship to my place in Ohio. Um, there's no taxes on eBay because they don't have to do that yet. But um, once everybody has to charge tax, we all end up paying it. Um, and the problem there is that if you are a player um, and not a vendor and you're not set up uh, like if your magic finance is really just about saving money and making your hobby a little cheaper, so you're you're not a registered business, then you don't ever get to claim this tax back by balancing it off against other taxes that you've paid to your business. You're just paying more money for stuff. So you're buying a hundred dollar card now. You're paying a hundred and seven, and every time you do that, you're paying that extra, um, which is going to make your speculations um, or the cards that you're acquiring seven percent more expensive. Um, that's definitely not where you want to be. So this isn't, as you said, is not going to happen immediately. It's going to like play out over the course of a couple of years, but everybody knows state governments are hard up for money. So they are certainly not going to pass this opportunity to start charging everybody lots of cash. Um, the, and it's not even just the taxes that are going to end up making things more expensive. It's the, as you said, the logistics are an operational cost to that, for some businesses will be meaningful enough that they might pass another, you know, 0.25 or 0.5% of um, net revenue, um, translate that into slightly more expensive pricing on product. Um, because this is a very onerous, like logistical burden to collect all this information and then, you know, work with your accounting team to pass this all on to the, the relevant states. Like it's basically like having to subfile your, your collected taxes like 50 times which is crazy um for anybody that owns a business um so it makes things more expensive it, one of the interesting things here is it levels the playing field so like once everybody has to do it um you know some of the advantages of say ebay versus tcg player disappear and you'll all everybody's just going to get used to it right uh, as you tend to do with taxes that which is why they only ever tend to get implemented and not repealed <laughs> Yeah. And I, I, I'll, the question is what this will do, I think, to TCG player and st stores like that, because that could have a real weird effect on them um, based on how that ends up getting implemented. If we're lucky, there will be exceptions for that type of thing. Uh, but in there, they're, you know, they're, the states are certainly mostly interested in going after stores, you know, very large online presence stores, you know, Wayfair is the one who was involved in this court case. Um, and they're like, I don't know if they're multi-billion, but they're, or if they're billion dollars worth of sales, but they're a real big vendor online. Um, so that's a type of fish that they're trying to fry here. TCG players might be on the cusp 
uh, of whether it's worth it type of thing. Um, so, and, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's more fallout here too, like, but I'm not knowledgeable enough about taxes to be able to kind of piece that out. And I couldn't find a really good discussion of it. I mean, there's some edge cases for me personally that won't apply to most of the listeners. <laughs> it makes Europe that much more attractive because no taxes over there. Um, and it also uh, makes potentially having stuff that I usually order in the US and ship to my US address, I might consider shipping to my Canadian address to dodge the taxes if the shipping is cheaper than the tax burden. Um, however, it also may mean that I uh, end up having to register as a business at some point in the in the US or need to deal with the IRS in some way. Since I am a Canadian who sells on US platforms, there's all sorts of muckiness that could come to the forefront. So I have to imagine that like you technically already should have been doing stuff with the IRS, right? No, I don't think so because I the 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 products are shipped from my country and I exist in my country, so I have no legal standing in in the US, right? I'm I'm no different than if you order something from Europe or China. Yeah, but I imagine that we're also sp- also supposed to pay taxes on that. Pay taxes on or, what I imagine that they're that buying that and doing absolutely nothing about it, like not repaying any taxes or anything, is also probably questionable. I mean, like for instance, wait, wait, are you talking, we are you were, talking about as the buyer or the seller? Either. Well, uh, this I, I I definitely as I, as a as a foreign entity, I can't be required by the IRS to do anything. Mm, well, in, if you're doing unless, business here. Right, but I have to be physically doing business. If I open a retail operation in the U.S., then yes, now I'm a retail, I'm a U.S. business. But a, an overseas business that happens to ship to the U.S. doesn't know the, the U.S. any taxes other than the ones that that you might claim in your recently irrational duty schedule. I guess I am thinking that if it if technically I was all of us, and I guess all of us as people in the U.S. were supposed to be filing tax returns with state taxes for goods that we purchased from stores that didn't charge us the state's tax. Like sure, we so, were supposed but, but to be doing that. Oh, wait, let me finish my thought. We were supposed to be doing that and absolutely nobody was. Leads me to believe there's probably other taxes that we're probably <laughs> supposed to be paying that we're absolutely not and nobody does. But but those are buyer burden taxes that you're referring to. That's not seller burden. I would think the burden would be higher on sellers. No, I can't no, because there's there's no pro there's no program in place by which the IRS can drag money out from overseas. Back to that because <laughs> we have no legal standing there. You, you can't require anything of us. We're not citizens of that country. No, you're well. You're and there's no the government has no right to to extract taxes from you as a as a citizen living in Canada. However, if you choose to start selling things in America, that seems not online. No, what, not online. I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I would have to hear it out of the word of a tax lawyer to believe it, one way or the other. Well, I mean, we've 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 looked into a lot of this for shelf life. Keep in mind, mm. like the and and we've already gotten tax advice on this. The so I mean, anything could change in the future. I mean, anything because one of the things that might happen is that some of these vendors that d- that want to have a competitive advantage, they could relocate their warehouses overseas. In, in the case of really high-end items. So like say, say you're shipping something like a Rolex, it's like a three to $10,000 purchase. Uh, if you're shipping pencils, it's not going to make sense to, to ship them from an overseas warehouse. But if you're shipping something very expensive where the shipping burden and the, and the courier fees are not particularly relevant, then there may be some motivation to move your operation overseas. So they could react to that in the future. But in, in current state, um, it doesn't really affect 
by selling into the US, but it could affect the platforms. For instance, eBay could end up saying, um, we don't care where you're located. If you're selling on our platform, we've been told we have to collect taxes based on um, where you're selling from. So if you are registered, if you tell eBay that you're, re- you're in Colorado, but really you're a Chinese reseller, um, which it happens frequently, right? Like a lot of the Etsy accounts are operations in China that claim an address in the US that doesn't actually exist. Hmm. And they will probably get caught up in this sweep. So if you're saying that you're in Denver, but you're actually, but your package always packages to people always show up as though they were from China, then you're probably going to have to start collecting state taxes based on the address you chose. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Suddenly there's going to be a ton of states or a ton of Etsy shops in Alaska, right? Which doesn't have yeah, or wherever tax. Uh, whichever state is the is the slowest to react to this will be the one that suddenly all the overseas vendors are located in, th- mm-hmm. in theory. Yeah. So interesting topic. Um, the 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 bottom line effect for most of our listeners is that cards are going to be slightly more expensive starting shortly. Yeah. And if you sell on TCG Player like we do, uh, like I do, uh, I don't know what it's going to mean for you. It's unlikely. At the end of the day, this isn't good for any of us. Like it's good for states who want to charge taxes, but you know, which you can argue is good for us because like that helps your state, blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. But you know, in terms of you and the amount of money you have, it's <laughs> well, not, none of this is good for you. It's just a question of how long it will take and how bad, it, how much of an impact it will have. Running it through the efficiency filtering mechanism of how well your state uses the taxes that are raised. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, like, I suppose there are people who this could be good for. If you own a shop, you're probably happy about this, right? It's likely in your better, no. likely better for you. No, I don't think so. I mean, if you on if you're an online vendor like an Abu or a Card King or whatever, this is a massive logistical hassle, as you said. No, I'm talking about um, I'm talking about physical. If you own a physical store, this oh yeah, yeah, this this could be. Yeah, this is this is good for the LGSs because they they are now on parity with the online stores. Like they they you know, one of their, the competitive disadvantages versus the online vendors gets eliminated, which, you know, helps reinforce the health of the LGS. So on that level, it's great. Yeah. So some of you may be happy about this. No, good for you, I guess. Um, all right. So we'll probably never talk about this again (laughs) because the changes will be slow and meandering. And the only time it will come up is if TCG player ever actually institutes a change. Other than that, uh, we got news of a Grand Prix happening over in Japan that released this set of rules for the trades, <laughs> which are I have to look. Th- I have to find these again because the I've got I've got, got them in front of you. Okay, yeah, I can send it to you. Give me one second. Well, you can just read them. That's fine. Tell our listeners what they're listening to here or what's going on over there. One sec. I'll I'll give it to you so you can take. A okay. Look. These these are uh, interesting to say the least. Yeah. So the- so this is go ahead. This is the trading floor rules for the trading area at GP Chiba. Um, You can't trade outside of this area. Players found trading outside the area may be asked to leave the premises and not be allowed back in. So you can be banned for trading cards. Keep in mind, this is not selling cards, which has not been allowed on GP floors for ages because it conflicts with the fees that the vendors pay to be there and, and, you know, have access to that market. Okay, so I just, this is just, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. This is, this is just a player 
taking a card out of their binder and giving it to another player in exchange for something. Right. All right. I'm sorry. I just want to yeah. hop in really quick just because I you said it quick and I'm, people might have missed it. There is a physical space demarcated in the event hall that is the only place you're allowed to trade. Like you have to sit right. at these three tables. And and your motives, your your conscience and motives, your purpose for trading has to be clear and well established. So everyone is welcome to trade cards with the goal of building decks for personal use or collecting their favorite cards. Wow, that's not murky at all. Trading cards for the primary purpose of earning a profit or engaging in any kind of business is strictly prohibited. I mean, um, on this level, somebody like uh, a Monty showing up and and working a hall. The premise of this guy, this, this theoretical shark attacking players instead of just dealing with vendors in an open and honest manner uh, is a little astonishing to me. And given that most vendors are at GPs to purchase, not to sell or primarily to purchase rather than to sell this shark showing up and selling them things is part of what they're paying there to be there for. So that's weird too. Um, And again, you can be kicked out for any of this. So the trading area rules are as follows. First of all, before entering the trading area, you have to fill out a form with your name and DCI number. So your privacy is removed and you have to self-identify as a trader. You can only enter the trading area three times per day. (laughs) That's this might be my favorite one. This is my favorite one, I think. In, in, In the case of the trading area being fully occupied, which I don't think is going to be a danger here. (laughs) <laughs> they'll make it a, a time system one hour one time so you can go in for an hour sit around by yourself and wonder why no one else is there read the rules and then realize no one else will be coming and leave individuals may not have any prices on their cards you may not use any websites or printouts for pricing cards so you cannot reference online pricing so guys like us who have memorized ten thousand prices are are at a supreme strategical advantage in this situation the, the, um it's hilarious to me that they think that the website is a, is somehow going to make trades less sharky and not more. This is impressive because they have essentially found a portal into the past. <laughs> it is now... You can only trade in 1996. Yeah, it is 2009 in that zone. <laughs> Smartphones don't exist. There's You can't look up TCG Player. You have to cross uh, you, your tips. Yeah, you just have to walk in and know your shit. Man, like I, this would have been... Let me tell you what trading was like when people didn't have smartphones. It was unreal. Uh, like, what's a, I mean, it, it was like walking into a jewelry store and the guy who runs the place going, hey, do me a favor. Just keep an eye on all of this really expensive jewelry. Uh, I'm going to go in the back and fall asleep. But I also won't know if you take anything, just so you know. Also, here's the keys. Like, you, it required... <laughs> a lot of willpower to not essentially steal from people. And I want to pick the point to highlight that I, I did not do that and had a rule against doing that for myself. Uh, but that was what could happen because people had no idea what their cards were worth. And you could be like, yeah, sure. I'll trade you my 75 cents mythic dragon for your like $70 common foil that you just have no reason to believe would ever be that much. Yeah, I, I remember a million stories from that era where people coming up to me and saying, oh, my God, look at this trade I just pulled off. Yep. A million. Like the the, the and the, and the funny thing is the other guy probably said the same thing because nobody really knew what things were worth. 
<laughs> so yeah, most of the time, the other guy who got hoses is going to his friends like, look at this sweet card I got. Yep. So, it, I mean, in many of those cases, like, even when somebody got quote unquote ripped off, you don't really know what happened because the utility transfer was still was still there. Um, bottom line is this more information is better. Um, apparently, excessively large trades determined at staff discretion will not be allowed. So if you decide to trade Lotus for Lotus or something, apparently they can step in and tell you you're not allowed. Um any kind ca- trades for cash, electronic funds, or payment of any kind are strictly prohibited, which is the one rule that makes perfect sense. Um, and failure failure to follow any of these can be res- grounds for being ejected. So part of our reaction to this is certainly cultural insensitivity. I mean, Japan is a different world. Um, not only do they have many rules there, they love those rules. And um, it is considered like beyond the pale rude to not... Uh, buy-in on the rules structure um, or even follow like basic etiquette or protocols that here are totally discretionary. Like if you want to eat a sandwich on the bus in North America, like as long as you're not being ridiculously obnoxious about it or making a mess, like nobody's going to raise an eyebrow. But in Japan, eating on the subway is like <laughs> marks you as a complete like idiot. I so, remember that. Yeah. The um and there and then and we could go on on that for quite some time. So you have to keep you know filter this through. This is a very different place with a different set of expectations socially and 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 economically. Um, that being the case, this is still really weird. So if if this was set up to protect players, they've got it all wrong. If this was set up to protect the vendors, um, I, I find it hard to believe that they want any of this to be the case. I mean, I guess dis- dissuading people. Excuse me. Dissuading people some total from trading is probably good from the vendor for the vendors because then you have to go buy cards. Um, but this is such a hostile environment. I would never want to trade. First of all, I don't trade. Period, and I don't think many sharks do. Um, the, the number of guys who are like backpack grinding these days is has shrunk to an unbelievably small number. Yeah, and um, and that's because, by the way, the death of the floor trader essentially is because everyone has smartphones. Right. And, they, and so and they can't leverage their insane knowledge gap over everyone else. Yeah. And so that's been better for everybody because now straight trades are the only thing that really makes sense, which still occasionally occurs. But most of the stuff is buy listing or just buying and selling normally because, A, we have a lot more places where we can sell uh, as players. Like we can sell on eBay. We can sell on TCG Player. We can sell on Facebook and via Twitter. We have all these great methods that put us like on par with other vendors. Um, and when we want to sell stuff, we can either sell to each other or sell to buy lists. And when we want to buy stuff, we have you know tons and tons of options, including from each other, as long as we're willing to leave the GP to do it. Um, so th- this is kind of weird. I I wouldn't want to pass like final judgment until I hear from people how things were actually handled. Like it's one thing to name a bunch of rules; it's another like how nosy they get. <laughs> in the process if if this is just to warn off egregious backpack traders that have been a problem in the past and it just plays out as like a normal trading space it's fine it's nice that there's a designated space where people can sit down and do that but i i would never participate in a situation where i feel like i have asymmetrical knowledge with the average player I mean, it's one thing to go into a vendor shop and clean them out of something they've mispriced. It's quite another to sit down with like 20 people in a row that can't look at their phones and then 
with the numbers I've got stored in my brain, just pick through their binder. That's just not going to make it like I, I would not feel OK with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels scummy being able to do that, basically. And like and essentially because the other person has no choice but to trust you either. Because they can't like they even if they know that you're knowledgeable and they're not like what are they going to do about it? They can't. They can't price. I mean, I have no, I have no motivation to trade in general. No, me neither. <laughs> the, the two, the two people that offered to do that in Vegas, I looked at them like they were crazy. I was like, "What year is it?" Trading. What is trading? Oh yeah, that's why I give you a ten dollar thing for a ten dollar thing, but I still just have a ten dollar mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. I mean, trading is amazing when you're just starting in the game. When I I wish I could erase all my knowledge, go back to square one and then have you introduce magic to me today. Because opening your first like couple of boxes were the product and then trading with somebody else who did that is awesome. Where you're like trying to like you want to build black red, they want to build white blue. So you give them all your black, your white blue cards and they give you all their black red cards and your decks get twice as good. And now you get that fun. Awesome. But once you have a massive collection and you're involved in multiple formats or you're down the rabbit hole for MTG finance, you have so many cards. The last thing you need is to like trade one for another, because the only time you're ever going to want to be motivated to do it is where you have an information advantage. And that's just not where you want to be, be operating <laughs> when it's so much easier to just go online and buy whatever copies you need. Yeah, respect. it's uh, it was a lot of fun back in the day, but it doesn't really work anymore we used to uh when my friends and i were playing we decided it would be cool to have it so that everyone got a starter deck and then like we chipped in and bought a couple booster packs and we opened them and shuffled them together face down and then whenever you played a game the winner got to take a card at random from the pile of shuffle boosters which was kind of nifty except that it meant that your decks got better very 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 slowly uh yeah, which is kind of similar to the whole like add a boot, like open a sealed pool, add a booster every week thing. I've done that with my dad a few yeah. times in the summer, like when we're on vacation or whatever. That's usually mm-hmm. pretty fun. So I agree. The question is like, what are they trying to accomplish with this? Uh, if if you're just trying to essentially drive business to the vendors, this will work because no one's going to bother with this. Uh, it's just too cumbersome. It's I, just I, easier I, to go to a vendor. I, I'd like to be a fly on the, the wall and see how this plays out. It seems yeah. amazing. Um, all right. All right. So final topic of the week, Cliff and I had a little a quick debate at on GP Vegas um, because somebody when I was opening my Japanese Kaladesh box, they were asking whether the masterpieces were in Japanese and everybody around him guffawed at how insane that would be. What if the masterpieces were in the language of the box they were they were within? What do you think a Russian masterpiece soul ring would go? Uh, for? Yeah, I saw you post this. I don't know how to answer that question without really having a better feel for the print run of those boxes. Well, so you don't know exactly what it is, but we know that it's probably 20 or 30 times below what the English print run is. So if there was like six to 8,000 masterpieces, you'd be talking about probably less than 1,000 Russian soul rings. Um, I guess I would probably be inclined to put it someplace around Judge Gaius Cradles. The the cradles are probably more plentiful than those would have been. Uh, But at the same time, there's probably a rough, it kind of bumps into that rough upper bound of like how much can the damn thing really be worth, uh, especially if it's not, you know, if a card is not power and if it's not reserve list, I, it feels like there's probably something of a mental barrier there. Um, 
So, yep. uh, you know, two to three grand probably for them. And you might, they might get as high as, they might, might poke up towards five, I suppose. Yeah, that's what I said at first. As I've thought about it, I think, I, I think I've come back around to Cliff's position, which was closer to a thousand. And I think it's based on the mental barrier thing that you just, that you just referenced. Um, it's going to be tough for people to justify a $5,000 soul ring over a like $3,000 unlimited mocks, right? Yeah. But there were, let me just double check that number. How many unlimited rares were there? Mm. I've got, I've got it handy one second. Yeah. Cause it's like, especially when you can get the card somewhere else, it's the functionally the same thing. It's like, Oh, this soul ring should be worth $5,000. It's so rare. Like, yeah, that's fine. I don't, I don't need to pay $5,000 for it. Like, I don't care how rare it is. I just don't need it. Like it's, it's just, it has no value to me. The, the question is really what, what's the market size? There was 18,500 unlimited rares. So in theory that these moxes would be 20 times more plentiful than this card would be. And I think one of the things that's hard for people to, to understand is that they are cards can be printed in the modern era that are rarer than cards from even the earliest parts of magic. If the conditions under which they are printed are unique, like a, a fall set rare is never going to be more rare than a mox. That's not going to happen. The game would have to utterly collapse, but something like a masterpiece already is like, I, I've already argued that there are less than 10,000 masterpiece soul rings period, just the English ones. And that's half as many as, as unlimited moxes at one time existed in the world. Now you can apply attrition factors to all of this and both not just attrition of destruction, but, and, and loss and, and whatever, but also attrition of hidden or absorbed into collections never to return. So how many active unlimited moxes versus active un, uh, masterpiece soul rings is an interesting debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, um, are you assuming that no extra Russian product was opened on the basis of these being in there? Yeah. Well, I'm certainly assuming that if that had been the case, no Russians would ever have opened any Russian product because yeah. they would have shipped it all overseas on eBay. Yeah, right. And uh, they would have been they would have been five hundred dollar boxes. Yeah, probably. Which is really wild when you consider the odds of actually opening a masterpiece in them. Based on the program by which distributors provide Russian and other foreign language boxes, usually Japanese, Korean, and Russian, to American, uh, like North American and probably European and Japanese as well um retailers i would actually argue that more russian product gets opened outside of russia already as is probably if you if you compare them if you assume that each like wpn store that's at least second level gets like at least one or two russian boxes of each new set and compare that to the number of lgs's that might get full orders in russia and the in eastern europe um ukraine and so forth uh i I think you still get a bigger number overseas um, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't doubt. I, I would believe that, um, especially, you know, some of those stores getting the Russian product. It's, they're like, well, we can most of our players speak English so we can get English boxes, which are real cheap. And the Russian boxes we can sell for a huge profit to foreigners or, you know, to third parties who can sell them overseas. Uh, and we're Russian, so we don't have a lot of money. So why wouldn't we do that? Mm hmm. Yeah, I think 5,000 is pushing it for the soul ring, but I, I think 1,000 like close to the guy's cradle makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. um, especially since we know that the English is 500. I mean, a Russian premium of double 
on something that that's the card in EDH, the top card um, that still doesn't look like it's getting banned anytime soon. Yeah, it could be a thousand. Okay. Um, all right. Well, did you have anything else you want to talk about this week or is... I think that's a wrap for this week. You all guys right. can find me on Twitter at MTG critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. And I'm Travis Allen. You can find me uh, every Monday at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. On Twitter, I write every Monday on mtgprice.com for the Watchtower series. And I also do the Cartel Aristocrats webcast. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. I uh, really enjoyed our episode this week, James. I thought it was a great chat and I'm looking forward to doing it again next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.